Hello, everyone. This is Robert Gowan. You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast. And if you're not on Mixler, then please join us there. That's mixlr.com. Uh, you can register using your Facebook account. You can chat live with the uh, the team here on the show and uh, be a part of the uh, the conversation. So we hope that you go out there and do that, especially if you are just getting the message and everything and hearing us uh, live, then certainly make sure that you join us on the Mixler account. We've got uh, Scott, Susan, Mike, and myself on the show, and we've got a special guest that's also joining us, and that's Lieutenant Colonel, former Lieutenant Colonel, I should say, retired James Wyrick, who goes by Wyrick, and that's how we're going to call him tonight, who was a judge advocate. He's also a contributor to Task and Purpose, a news and culture site that we're going to get into just a moment, a little bit later into the show about what it does, but it's for military and veterans, and he often writes articles for them and also uh, appears on their podcast. So uh, welcome to our show, James. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to it. Absolutely. We're going to get right into initially talking about background and stuff. We, Of course, I mentioned that you were in the Marine Corps and as a JAG officer, but I hope you can kind of give us a highlight and overview of your background and why you came in and uh, how many years you spent in and those types of things. I spent 18 years in. I retired a little bit early because of an injury. I don't know exactly why I came in other than just to say I had a desire to serve after college and and then I became a Marine. So were you a ROTC um, guy? or prosecutor. No, um, I just went in right after uh, graduation from college. Gotcha. Um, I served as a prosecutor, defense attorney, appellate counsel. I prosecuted down in Guantanamo Bay. I've been a a number of years there. Um, I've been an SJA, staff judge advocate. I've been a deputy. I've served just about every role that uh, a lawyer could serve. Cool. And now that you know, you're uh, you're doing a lot of stuff with Task and Purpose Radio, so maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about that and what guys talk about there. Well, I've been really fortunate in my transition after retirement. I started, I just wanted to do something different. And I got into writing. I've uh, written for Vice News. I've written for Task and Purpose, uh, Blue Force Tracker, a number of different publications. And then about six months ago, Lauren Katzenberg, who is the assistant editor and co-founder of Task and Purpose, she came up with the idea to start a podcast. So I, along with Nate Bethay, who's a – he was an Army captain, got together with Lauren, and we just started a podcast. We initially – we've been covering the Bo Bergdahl case. I won't uh, go into that much today. I'm sure you, uh, you can listen to that. But uh, we also do other military-related issues on our on our off weeks on our podcast. Yeah, I've watched uh, several of those, and they're really good. And so I encourage everybody to go out there and listen to them for sure, because there's some really cool subjects. And of course, you just Thank mentioned you. one of them that's been talked about on multiple occasions. It looks like I, I would definitely follow those. But one of the things I think, you know, if you were out, go out there, and of course, you know, every one of us Google's ourselves. So I googled you, Eric, so that I could find out more about you one of the things that popped up of course in the very beginning was about the the whole video of the marines filmed you know urinating on the uh, dead insurgents and stuff and your name came up along with that i don't know if you want to go into the details of that and what your involvement was but it certainly was something that you, you made a lot of headline news across the world for sure yeah no i don't i don't mind going into it at all i wish i um i only wish i could have done more we had about four years ago now, there was the video surfaced of four Marine snipers urinating on uh, two bodies in Afghanistan. 
and I worked for the general who was eventually tasked to prosecute the case. There was a lot of top-level interference from the commandant, General Amos, at the time, and I stayed in about a two-year ongoing battle with that uh, to make sure that those Marines weren't um, weren't sacrificed up for the political whims of uh, the brass. Yeah, I think, I mean, I could certainly see your position and what you were trying to do. When I read the stories, it was quite interesting, and it did seem like you were engaged in that for a long period of time. I, I definitely don't want to go too deep into that subject. There's certainly enough available that's out there online if anybody's interested in going out and reading it. But I just found it interesting that, you know, you were engaged in that. It's a very publicized uh, story. And again, something that a lot of folks have probably uh, heard about. And, you know, your engagement with that uh, was quite extensive. And, and I've... And I've stayed engaged with that. I, uh, I continue to work for a congressman on uh, Capitol Hill on certain issues. And my main focus on that is to ensure that our soldiers, sailors, uh, airmen, Marines aren't aren't unfairly punished for political expedience and that uh, pressure isn't put on by members of Congress or trying to shape the way the UCMJ comes out. So that can that continues to be a passion of mine and something I try to um, keep with after my military career. Gotcha. And so I know you're engaged on a lot of other, speaking of that, with other veterans' causes. So what are what are some of the other things that you're engaged with? Well, uh, especially ensuring I've been uh, working with the NPR station down in Los Angeles. I'm trying to work some UCMJ reforms or some really administrative reforms to ensure that, you know, our soldiers and Marines and everyone that comes back and may have PTSD issues that are either treated or go untreated, and they they usually manifest with some sort of UCMJ violation, and and then they're stripped of all of their VA benefits. I've had a number of clients like this, and I think it I think we really do a long term disservice to those service members and and to us as a society because I've had I've had clients that come back have PTSD. And they get a DUI and they may have served, you know, anywhere from four to 10 years. And if they get a bad conduct discharge, there, there goes all their VA benefits and especially their ability to continue to get treatment. So I view it as, hey, if we had a soldier come back and he lost a limb, we wouldn't say you got a DUI, you know, give us that prosthetic back. So I've uh, that's definitely been an ongoing passion of mine. Yeah, I can certainly uh, hear it in your voice because, I, I mean, I can understand that as well. I think anytime we have an opportunity, especially as veterans, and we talk about this all the time on our podcast, to reach out and help others, it, it just kind of, I don't know, uh, most of us feel like that's just the right thing to do. And it's something we try to do with this podcast for certain is trying to, to mentor and help those that are coming off active duty. And certainly if there is situations like what you're describing there where you can offer that service that you have <clears throat> the knowledge and background of being a prosecutor and a JAG officer and everything, I'm sure it comes in great hand and they're probably very appreciative. So one of the things I do want to kind of kind of hit into is that your transition, many of us that we've had, uh, or at least all of us that I think we've had on this podcast so far have all been on the enlisted side of it. So it'll be really interesting to hear from your perspective. We talk a lot about the transition assistance program. Mike even had a, a blog that he wrote about, about the transition assistance 
license program and everything. So curious if you could give us some of your perspective of what your transition was like. Did you feel like the program was successful in your eyes in helping you transition to the private sector? And if not, what would have been some of the things that you would have changed? I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I just, just today I finished up uh, your coaching uh, versus mentoring podcast. And I thought a lot about that. And I had had in my Marine Corps career, a lot of uh, formal and informal mentors, uh, some coaches. And with my transition, it's really been different. And I don't want to I don't want to suggest that I somehow set out to do this or that I was trying to do this intentionally. It just happened kind of by a chance. But I've really now been mentored by a lot of people much younger than me. A lot of the people that I work with at Task and Purpose, uh, Brian Adam Jones, um, the people that I've worked with, like Aubin, uh, Thomas Gibbons Neff, James Laporta are both reporters and they've really informally become my mentors and and almost almost every one of them they, they were all marines almost every one of them got out by corporal or maybe were we might lance somewhere in my background of mentors or lauren katzenberg who spent two years uh in afghanistan as working with the military so i think that i've kind of tapped into Inadvertently, I've tapped into this whole other network of mentors that that are junior, that would have been much junior to me while we were serving, but now I I treat them as mentors and colleagues and people I work with and definitely learn from. Yeah, I had I have a similar type of experience, and it, you know, interesting that you brought that up because I too have some mentors that I look at that were very junior, but the fact that they had done a lot of the stuff ahead of me was very helpful to me in my own transition. The the transition program itself, uh, we all have to go through. It's a mandatory thing, and, and I believe the Marine Corps is the same, and I'm assuming it is for the officers on the Marine Corps side. I know Susan went through the transition program. But what were your thoughts on that program itself in terms of like helping you make your resume or helping you do the interview process, those types of things that they teach you in that program? Did you, did you find that of any assistance to you? I'm not going to say it was bad and anything bad about it, but I didn't think it was. It, it gave me some resources, but I think most of them I I made through uh, actual relationships. You know, it wasn't that I took a class in TAP and TAMP right. that, that made me think about a new career. It was kind of the relationships that I had built already before I transitioned. Gotcha. So my last two jobs... I was at uh, Marine Corps Combat Development Command. That's the Marine Corps version of TRADOC. And then I was at the Joint Staff down at the J-7. So most of the people that I would run into there or had had mentor, mentee, or uh, advice relationships there, it all kind of – it was just moving uh, from the military to the civilian side and pretty much in your same job. You know, there were so many prior military – civilians that work in both of those organizations that was pretty much all they could tell me how to do and that's not i mean nothing nothing wrong with that those are those are very those are great jobs but i wanted to strike out and do something different and especially with podcasting and journalism it was really the younger people that were so much more helpful right they uh 
They're open to new experiences, and they really have helped me the most. That's really interesting because I always think that, you know, if I find a mentor or a coach or whatever, that the person should be older than me because they're more seasoned or experienced or whatever. I retired from Quantico. I was at Manpower and Reserve Affairs. And like you, I was surrounded by people who were either still in and an officer or they retired and then came back to work on Monday in the same desk job just in civilian clothes and so they didn't know how to tell me anything so that's interesting i never thought to look at the younger generation I, I think, which yeah i was just sense. down the street i was just down the street at the death star there at mcsidic from you and absolutely that you know three quarters of the people there were you know it's either your master sergeant or a lieutenant colonel or a colonel that's working there and they really only had that view of life and i and i understand it you know <laughs> Age-wise, you probably have children in either high school or college, and so a lot of people are looking for that very structured road ahead. But I'll tell you that the younger Marines and just younger people that I've met have really been helpful to me as far as a job. Now, I still do have mentors for other life experiences, you know, whether it be family or an uncle. or So I, I, I try to keep those, but as far as new experiences – I've found younger people to be very helpful. That's awesome advice. I like I that. I think, James, what you're talking about, too, is the, the use of technology and how young people have grasped technology much more rapidly than we have as an older generation. You know, in U.S. SOCOM, over the past six, seven years, we've really reached out to that generation to, to help us develop apps for phones, what, to use while we're downrange, to, to develop more technologies to use for intel analysis. Um, I think it's only natural to to reach out to younger generations if you're going into things like this, like podcasting or journalism, because they're well, they're more comfortable in that environment. Absolutely, I'm I'm 44, and I'll say that still the overwhelming majority of my friends, if I say I'm on a podcast, they say, "What is a podcast?" But if you're talking to people in their 20s, early 30s, that's all they do is listen to podcasts. Right. And so, you know, if it's Brian Adam Jones or James Laporta. They're Marines that got out as corporals. They're right now either doing their undergraduate or, or um, master's degree and really in touch with the new things that are going on. And especially, you know, podcasting, online journalism, they really have the pulse. Us older Gen Xers can, <laughs> can learn a lot from them. Speaking of learning, Aaron in the chat room has a question for you. Wyrick, he says, uh, can you give more information on how you distinguish veterans of PTSD who need help and those who are just troublemakers? How can we be better at helping those who truly need the help and will be able to use it? Is there Are there tools that you have that, that you would recommend or, or instances or perhaps a case study? I would. That's difficult to do. But I would say that depending on, you know, you have to know the background of your Marines or, uh, or soldiers, but I would err on the side of even your troublemakers. A lot of times that they can have an underlying PTSD issue. So, yes, I, I'm not saying that that we need to keep them in the service. We still have a mission to accomplish and we can't have troublemakers doing that. But as far as the long term, I think getting them help and getting them counseling. So at least it's recorded, you know, so later if they get out that uh, they can continue to get treatment because the last thing we want is anyone we served with, you know, being homeless or out of street later in life. 
That that brings up a good question. You know, as particularly for for some senior people that may be listening to the podcast, commanders, uh, a JAG officer will come in and recommend uh, oftentimes the maximum amount of punishment that you can give to a soldier. And uh, sometimes with a chapter, that brings exactly what you're talking about. So what advice would you give them to still allow that service member to be able to get the care that he needs after he's out of the military, but yet meet the organizational responsibilities of discipline and removing them from service? I I think that my advice would be as much as commanders can for for the Marine Corps and Army, they're usually you're looking at lieutenant colonels and up and uh, master sergeants, sergeants major, you know, uh, being their enlisted advisors. Think about the second and third order effects that for for that later service member that absolutely you need to remove you, you know if if we're talking about something serious you need to remove them from your organization but that maximum punishment think about what that does for their abilities later down the road and and I know we've always I mean all of us have always viewed hey it's very important to get that uh to get that honorable discharge that's earned but I would say temper that with also understanding what that will cut that service member off from later as far as just their – I'm talking basic things about you know, mental health services and they're to not let them go oh. through that crack. Because you have some people – I mean I've, I've had a number of clients like that that you just look at this, this Marine and say, you were never meant to – you know, to be governed by the UCMJ. Uh, yes, I know the, the earring is great when you're out in Oceanside, but you can't get caught with an earring through the front gate. Every- but that doesn't mean that person can't go on and flourish outside of the military, you know? So I, I think that if, as much as commanders can understand what, how their, di- their characterization of discharge later impacts service members, the better we all are. Just as a... I'm glad you said that. I, I just offer a little experience of my own as a battalion and brigade level army command sergeant major. Um, you know, it's a it's a zero defect military now. Uh, as we're downsizing, uh, one drug offense, one time positive on your analysis, one DUI triggers a chapter process. So we we go through the process of removing a guy from service who has otherwise performed very well uh, at times. And usually in that time frame is when we identify post-traumatic stress as a trigger that maybe caused them to reach out to drugs and self-medicate or alcoholism. But there is a way to, to get them treatment and to, to process them through the military, de- depending on how bad the, the offense is, and they can still retain those benefits uh, after discharge. Yeah, I've had, when I was down at MCRD San Diego, I had, um, so our West Coast recruit training, I had a drill instructor. In fact, I've had more than one drill instructor as a client that were battle-hardened Marines that really had performed amazingly on the battlefield. And they come back and they just can't deal with life. And usually they're looking to self-medicate after that. They're looking to drugs or alcohol. And that comes up as a UCMJ violation. And really, we owe it to them to, to make them whole eventually. Understanding, absolutely, we need to separate them from the Marine Corps, but... We still, I'm fond of saying, like, we wouldn't take away their prosthetic, so we shouldn't take away their counseling because we want, they fought and are scarred because of their service. We owe it to them to make them better, to return them to society as whole people. Or that's just why. No, and I mean, at the program manager level with DOD, I saw a lot of the zero defect as well that, you know, great 
soldiers, Marines, airmen, of whatever background, you know, one mistake, and, and it was almost as if the command, whatever that command was, would just turn their back on them. And it made me sick to my stomach oftentimes just to kind of see the treatment that these guys were getting for what was, you know, a mistake that almost anybody could make, right? Well, going back to probably 2012, 2013, Susan may remember this, that when the Marine Corps is looking to downsize radically, they were, I mean, manpower was going around and making making suggestions about how to downsize through the administrative legal process, you know, that tattoos that maybe didn't meet the tattoo policy, you know, small administrative problems. And I, I hate to think that those that those uh, Marines are turned out and not, and don't later have the services that they've earned. And not only that they've earned that, that just help all of us eventually, you know, we want productive members of society who served along with us. It's almost as if, and I, I think the Marine Corps, you know, has, has its, its strict ways about certain things that sometimes we appreciate. And then sometimes we all roll our eyes at that. We, we tend to throw people away. And, and it's sad because, like you said, you know, we, we throw them away and then there's no future. And then we complain when we see a Marine in the news who's done something wrong. And then we wonder why. How did that happen? He was a Marine. Well, it's because he got thrown away. Absolutely. And it was uh, to tell you, I was <laughs> I could it was a little bit stomach turning when they oh, well, you know, do you have a Marine with sleeves? because that's in violation of whatever our tattoo policy was from month to month. And we want to uh, administratively separate him for that. And you're like, that's just not right. I mean, if we have a policy, we should be enforcing it all the time because it's either problematic or it's not. It shouldn't just be selectively enforced in order to get rid of what whoever we have uh, determined is a problem child at the moment. Right. Marines are good at making up rules, though. We make them up on a whim. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and it and if if we're gonna enforce them, enforce them, you know. But if we're not, we're not. And I think that the the tattoo pol- policy has always been one that's that's wrangled me because you can't tell me that. Uh, I, I see, you know, I'm I'm doing video Skype right here and, and I can see some tattoos and I can say we have some probably amazing uh, members of the army right here. Yes. They're all on mic. <laughs> Susan? Guilty. I'm, I, I'm, I am not tattoo less. So. Yeah, I'm, I am too. I think we've done away with those policies. I think we've done away with those policies in the last few years. The failures of a previous sergeant major of the army uh, trying to trying to make everybody look like choir boys. Um, I, I, I don't know. That's that's a rabbit hole we probably shouldn't go down. <laughs> you know, we our generations in the military have been at war longer than ever in, in our history. Um, and in a different war on multiple battlefronts with a, a more defined, you know, weapon system on the enemy's hands. It's, you know, the TBIs in five years that have identified the issues that traumatic brain injuries are causing in society are going to be horrific you know we haven't we have yet to see the cost because of the survivability on the battlefield is the greatest ever and yet with that comes a cost you, you, we keep mentioning prosthetics and those are visible costs and visible wounds but the traumatic brain injuries and the ptsd and you know and not the stigmatized post-traumatic stress but the actual legitimate instances of, of ptsd that's going to have a real impact on society to scale 
we've never seen. Right, absolutely. And the, the more people that we can get help and to get them through those issues instead of letting it fester and having them on the streets, I think that that's, that's what they deserve. I mean, I came in, I, I thought about and joined the military in the mid-90s. It, it wasn't a time of war. I'll tell these the young people that are serving now are pretty amazing, you know, knowing that we've been in an ongoing war for for a, for a 15 years. And as we hear politicians tell us, you know, ISIS and and Afghanistan are another two decades away from being over. So it's it's really impressive the the crop of people we get in the military now. You know, I think uh, with everything, change has to happen. Um, you know, you've got to go with the flow and it's one of the things that, you know, the military has been slow to adapt in some of those cases. Um, and you know, the guys getting off active duty, uh, gals, whatever, I usually just refer to gals, I mean guys, but, <clears throat> but I mean both, um, you know, when, they, when they come off active duty, there's, there, there's not always that, um, easy transition. There's not always that care. I mean, they're coming from a combat environment back to, um, a, a an environment that is really disengaged for the most part um, doesn't always see everything that's going on in the wartime um, and uh, so they only see it on the news here and there so it's a, it's a little bit different perspective and so it it, it it's not a um, it's not as smooth as transition maybe as it should be um, and, you know and I think that we've as a public been a, become a little desensitized to the news you know you've just in 2004, you know, it was a big deal. But now, uh, yeah, there's casualties, and yes, there's this ongoing struggle in far off places that we can't even pronounce. And I think that the the public tends to forget about the, the that our service members what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and so it makes it that much difficult. We've talked about in many podcasts that you may have heard as well about the just the whole transition and that the private sector has a different viewpoint of the military already. And then that soldier's trying to come back, do all the right things. They may be dealing with challenges in their own world and things that they're trying to go through. It uh, could be PTSD-related. It could just be other factors that are coming into play. So that transitional period, it's so pivotal. And, and so it, it's something that needs to be really taken into consideration from leadership perspective. And it shouldn't just be about attending mandatory classes, but truly embracing that and helping them get through the psychological aspect of what that transition is going to mean as well. And I'm sure they uh, you have this same mentality in the Army. I know that we have it in the Marine Corps that you never want to tell anyone you're thinking about getting out of the Marine Corps. You know, you're going, you're you're a lifer from the, from yeah. day one. But I think the reality is you do need to start preparing for that. You know, maybe an enlistment or so before your last enlistment. Um, the people that I rely on now were people that I met. I mean, mostly through social media. I've I have a lot of a lot of reporters, and I mean, even Lauren and Brian Adam Jones. Those two, uh, those two, I work with all the time. I've only seen them in person maybe three times. You know, there's a there are so many resources out there through social media to start planning that transition. Yeah. And I think that we need to encourage our people to be doing that earlier and not, you know, not to stigmatize that because, Hey, it ends for everybody. There's, you know, we're, yes. and everybody's still a young person when they get out. I, I mean, I, 
all my body parts don't work quite as well, but I still feel fairly young. And it's not like you're just going to retire and then say, okay, I'm going to go feed squirrels. You know, that right. we all need to be preparing for that transition. You know, and I almost would uh, stay, uh, say that you – I know it's not something that you can start teaching as early as when you first come in. But I almost feel like there needs to be something that's kind of there within the sergeant's time or within the the counseling that uh, non-commissioned officers do uh, with their, um, you know, soldiers or airmen, sailors. Uh, you know, when those NCOs get an opportunity to talk about career advancement or things within the military, also use that time to talk about where they could maybe benefit in preparing for that transition whenever that may come as well. Yeah, I think for us, it's probably at the at the at the Lance Corporal time that, hey, you know, are, are you going to enlist again? Are you going to go to school? Do you want to take an officer route? Like just starting to think about that at that time. I think that uh, that benefits everybody. It makes it makes our services stronger, and it makes our uh, all of our service members ready for that transition that eventually comes for everyone. You know, Robert, this is something you and I have talked about in detail in the past, and, and how you you would develop younger members of your organization after you retired and, and were working in the private sector. Uh, it's just professional development. Yes. It, yeah. You know, in, in the military, yes, there's a there's a mission that has to be accomplished and there's organizational objectives. But part of that is is treating the whole person and, and developing uh, the, the the whole person. And, and sometimes we counsel uh, soldiers, service members on on how to exit the military. And I, I don't think we do it very well, obviously, or we wouldn't be having these conversations so much uh, every week. But I, I think that that you and I have talked about that quite a bit, and it's 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 no different. Yeah, but the military, just like every other organization, suffers from shiny object syndrome, and you know, trying to prioritize operations and and guidance and stuff, right? So, you know, and that's we can't guise the lack of preparedness and lack of mentoring the younger, you know, soldiers, Marines, and seamen of all different ages that we can't prioritize the lack of mentoring to them through some guise of getting ready for war. And I think that I. I listened. I was just listening to your previous podcast about um, mentoring and and coaching. And and in thinking about that, I think that I've tried to embrace. And I think that I've invented something <laughs> new. To, it's I haven't invented the wheel, but I've tried to embrace. You're always a mentor or a mentee at all times, and you should be transitioning back and forth through that as as rapidly as you can, because there's people that you're learning. From you're you're learning from and you're always also trying to pass on lessons to others so whether it's formal or informal we should always be looking for people that we can learn from looking for mentors and looking for just small ways to mentor those other people that were around at, in or out of the service yeah it's kind of the uh, the pay it forward or you know you know when I think that a lot of people, that's great advice, by the way, uh, Wyrick. I think that if a lot of people actually listened to that and applied it, we'd be a whole lot better off in many different aspects. I mean, because um, I, I think it's there's always stuff to be learned, and we've talked about that. Nobody's smart, and if you think you're the smartest person in the room, we all know the answer to that. So it's, it's about um, learning and then embracing that and passing that knowledge on to the next person and repeating that over and over and over again. And if you do that and you apply that to the transitional side of it, um, I think we would be a lot better off. And I think that's the reason why you've, I, again, I've not met very many uh, veterans who I've approached about 
um, talking with those are, that are currently on active duty or um, in coming on this podcast or whatever the case may be um, that aren't willing to give back, that aren't willing to step forward and give whatever advice they can. And matter of fact, many of them are just really stoked about it. They're like, oh, yeah, man, I'd love that opportunity to get there and, and talk about some of those types of things. Um, so I, I think it's there. It's just got to be um, in the forefront a whole lot more, you know. I think just by starting the I think conversation here's one of the difficulties. having the conversation, right? Just continually having the conversation wherever uh, you're absolutely. at. Absolutely. And I think one of the problems is, and I'll, I can illustrate this with one of my pseudo clients at one point when I was in Okinawa. The people that are always offering you advice are often the people that you don't want to take advice from. I had this major that was in Japan in jail, and he's he's a major. I'm a young captain, and I would have to go and visit him in jail every day. And he's trying to tell me, like, oh, you should do this or that with your career. And I'm thinking, who's on the other side of bulletproof glass? You know, that, yeah. that you actually have some of the people that you really want to be your mentors, they – they try. They tend to lead by example and not by handing out advice all the time. So I think that as you're responsible for being a mentor and mentee at all times, you should be seeking out sometimes those people that just that that lead by example, and you yes. have to pry it out of them a little bit, or um, th- that they don't always. I, I think because they have a, a certain amount of humility. You know, they aren't coming up and saying, hey, I, I'll I'll map out your life for you. You know, here you go. So I think that that's something that that we can all stay attuned to that. that but that's also people exactly, that you want to emulate. That's also exactly how a lot of people, especially people who do have God given talents. That's how they mentor. They just lead by example. And because they're you know humble or, or like you said, they, they have humility, they're not going to risk telling you and seeming like they're condescending or patronizing you by saying like, well, here's some advice I can, but you know, I know several people who just continuously work hard, prepare, do the right thing every day, you know, rinse, repeat, work hard, repair. I mean, and were they to give me advice, I would, I would gladly take it. And, and in fact, I would welcome it, but they just believe that by leading by example and doing the right thing that that illustration will show so, you know, just because somebody isn't verbally telling you what, what you want to hear doesn't mean that you still can't learn a lesson from them. Um, I've had that with the with the young Marines that I'm working with now. It would just feel a little bit odd if, you know, I, I went to one of them and I said, hey, can you mentor me on this? And, you know, because they're still trying to call me sir, I'm trying to tell them, no, you know, we're colleagues now. That was a, a previous time in our life. And it would just be odd to say, can you mentor me on this? I think you have to you have to finesse it sometimes and just learn what you can from people by what they do and just interacting with them and, and treating them like, you know, as much as you can, like colleagues and it, making it a little more informal. Yeah. And I was going to basically say the same thing. I mean, we're constantly talking about and in, in leadership or just in education alone that you always continue learning and reading and, you know, reading books and those types of things because you can um, get, you know, um, so stale at a period of time if you're not actually going out there and doing that often. And when I think about um, the best people that 
have mentored me in the past, it's always been those individuals that I could just sit back, as you mentioned, and watch them through their example and learn so much from them. And sometimes it's just about um, kind of street watching. It's it's just watching these individuals, how they handle situations when it's, uh, you know, they're, they're having a tough day or uh, whether, you know, when I see that there's pressure being placed on them to make uh, decisions in a timely manner or how they're leading other um, subordinates or associates that are difficult to manage, um, how they're navigating through the day alone uh, can be such valuable lessons. And at times, it doesn't have to be a spoken word. Ryan Neal has a great oh, point in the chat room. said that a lot of times you can learn from everybody. Even bad leaders teach you, you know, mentor you in what not to do. Yes. Um, in fact, I have a, an article in my book about that. You know, bad teachers teach you just as much, right? Because I learned so much from certain people in past jobs. I won't mention them by name, but I know to never act and in, in be as they were. And that guides me daily just as much as positive mentoring because I've seen the negative sides of what a negative mentor can do. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I just I think we should all stress just trying to I mean, I was going to say only it came from me because my father never taught me a lesson by telling me anything. He always did it by living his life and doing it the right way. And you just saw, you know, how how to be a person that was the right way. Just by watching him, he never had slogans or sayings. So I think that's made it easy for me to look at people younger, older and say, I want to be I want to develop that skill set or I want to develop that way of acting and I need to watch and learn from this person. Yeah, absolutely. What What are some of the things when you're looking at some of the service members uh, that are getting out, um, wh- what do you see as some of the things that they're failing to do um, from maybe even your perspective of being a prosecutor and in from your legal side of it, are there things that they're just not taking care of prior to their separation that they could probably work on even more? Um, or where do you see some of the, the biggest concerns? I know you, you mentioned one of them about those that are uh, separating with PTSD or those that are, um, you know, having challenges of honorable versus uh, general dishonorable discharges and such. But are there other things that um, kind of stand out to you that, you could offer as far as advice from your having been in your role. I think, yeah, I think that the the best thing that um, that separating you know younger service members can do is take advantage of their time in the military when they have very good steady incomes and start developing very good financial practices, not getting into debt, ensuring that they have a will when they leave, those type of things that can that. Uh, that they have a very steady income while they're in and make sure that they're, uh, that they're schooled up on all of the programs, especially the, the post 9-11 GI Bill is it just, it's amazing. And to ensure that they take advantage of everything they can there. So I think on like financial knowledge and financial stability can really help to avoid a lot of problems when, when they separate. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to come on the podcast was so that I could use myself as an example of all of the things not to do. Because when I retired, you know, like some of you have heard before, when I retired, I was going to be a housewife. That was the plan. I was just going to sit at home and babysit my kids. And, you know, my kids got sick of me and I had to go back to work. One of my biggest regrets was when I was at Quantico and they said, you can go to base legal and get a, a will and it's free. I did not do it. 
I said, oh, I don't need a will. I'm fine. I'm young. I'll be fine. So then I get to Ohio and my husband's an IndyCar crew chief and he's on the road all the time. And he had a certain driver who's pretty famous right now who one race week weekend hit him in pit lane. And I thought, oh, gosh. So we decided we were going to go get a will. Do you know how expensive wills are in the <laughs> private sector? Holy crap. And I kicked myself. Like, that is no joke. For That's one of the biggest pieces of advice I would give anybody is before you leave the base, go get a will. It's free. It's not free in the civilian world. I, I just want to add in there that retirement yeah, services, and there's a lot at of, least in the know, Army, will provide that for you as a retiree. I know everybody doesn't separate as a retiree, but you can go back to a military installation. You can get wills and power of attorneys free of charge uh, as a military retiree. Wow. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's true for us. But it, like you're saying, if you're in Ohio, you're not, you know, we're the Marines, especially are very coastal. So you, you don't have that readily accessibility that you would have had while you were, you know, living in Q-Town. Right. So one of the things, Wyrick, I wanted to ask, and we spoke on the phone previously, but, you know, what are some of the stigmas or, you know, um, reputational pieces or hurdles that you've had to overcome by being that Marine, you know, guy in retirement in the civilian where I know that you're heavily embedded still with the military side of things on task and purpose and whatever. But when you meet civilians, are there additional hurdles post transition and into your current career that you've had to overcome or deal with because of the, uh, legendary Marine status? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, um, I think it's, mine was, you know, it was a little more, the volume was turned up on it, but it was a little more similar than, than you would think. It's, I think that, you know, we still have less than 1% of the population that's serving, you know, so we're all kind of going back into this, this big civilian pond and, and, and just breaking down those barriers and, and, you know, just to tell people that, hey, we're not that different. We just had a different job than you for a while. But, you know, we're we're still people. And I think that that definitely is a challenge. And it, it remains a challenge for me. Um, but to the extent that we can say that, oh, no, you, you know, that you're still a person, you can understand us, that we're not we're not a totally alien race. But uh, I will say I'm I'm not fully. I don't have a full answer for that because I haven't perfected it. You know, life is about trying to make it from day to day and get get a little better. And I, I All right, so I'll, definitely I'll flip it, enjoy right? so things you, like your podcast because you get to learn from other people. Well, I'll flip it. So if there's no barriers that you're you know running into, then what are the positive sides? I mean, how many, how much extra marketing or value do you get from in the civilian world with having that Marine title or retired Marine? I get to come on things like <laughs> like this podcast. I was on a <laughs> podcast uh, last well night. Played. We get well to. Uh, I was on Crime Writers on Serial. I've, I mean, it's it really does help a lot because people they want to like us. You know, they really want to. You know, this isn't you know, Vietnam or, you know, the hyperbole of Vietnam coming home and getting spit upon. People like to hear your story. They want to approach you and and talk to you about things. So I think there's a there's a lot of positives to it. And I really uh, I think that people try to embrace us a lot. It's just sometimes so, hard to take the embrace, I think. 
So Ryan Neal in the chat room has a question. Talking about legal documents and leveraging military assets while you're in, is there a way to utilize JAG resources to assess, critique, or research a product patent? Do you ever deal with patent oh, research as well, Wire? Oh. <laughs> no, I know all the lawyers. I wouldn't trust them. <laughs> no, that's, that's a pretty specialized part of the law. I wouldn't trust myself with that. Lawyers and admin are great resources for setting up that that um, TSP account. You know, if if you're only going, you're not going to serve all the way to retirement. Ensuring you get, you know, as Susan said, ensuring you get a will. There's a lot of uh, of services for you while while you're in. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for the most part, you you can just about approach Jag with any type of uh, legal situation, and you guys will be the first ones to tell the uh, the military member whether or not it's something you guys can even give advice on. Because I, I think that there are certainly a ton of things that I've gone uh, and asked questions about. I never thought about it, patents or uh, corporate, you know, small business information and all that. But there were other things that I approached that I was quite amazed at, uh, you know, of course you guys are lawyers, so you have all that type of background anyway. Definitely. I think that we're always looking to, I mean, we get a lot of good people that, you know, lawyers or not, you know, that are just looking to help, right. Help fellow service members. And I think that's to a great extent while, why we all join the military. So like you say, I mean, you might have an, an, an admin clerk, that knows a lot about finance that you just should be always exposing yourself to all those people that that have more knowledge than you in in a certain aspect of life so are you uh working along uh with i, I think you're up in virginia right are you still up in the virginia area I, I moved i moved back to california i am in a tiny tiny hamlet in california up by uh uh, very close to Yosemite National Park. Okay. In fact, the the podcast I was on last night, I got caught up at the very end because we had a huge thunderstorm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so I was uh, going to ask you about uh, kind of follow on to Scott's question uh, about the, uh, you know, the, the D.C. area, Virginia area and all of that, especially on the legal side and uh, the implications that are around there. And anyway, I guess it doesn't really apply. Oh, no, I'm, I'm still happy. No, I'm still happy to talk about that. But you know, there's a if you do retire in an area because I, I was down in Virginia Beach and then I was in DC. There's it's there's such pipelines, you know, for right. your later employment. You should be definitely taking advantage of all of those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I was going to say is because I think there would be a lot of opportunities for you within that area. I'm just having been on the the government side and then transitioning easily over to the DOD side and being within the beltway and having worked within that area in that space, that's that's considerable knowledge to be able to take with you for sure. Oh, absolutely. Both the joint staff and my time at McSiddick, you had an overwhelming number of of people that you know, we would see you would see them at McSiddick for sure that they would be in uniform and then you didn't see them for about 45 days and they would come back with a beard wearing a sport coat and they were definitely planning for their next career with the military after their active duty service. Yeah. And those are great. Those are fantastic opportunities. I mean, you you, you almost automatically at least increase your income by you know 40 percent and and you're and you're doing the same thing so either through direct employment or being a contractor if you're in if you could plan your career that you're in one of those areas where there's a high uh, concentration of, of contractors 
those are fantastic opportunities for our transitioning service members. Right. So I think at this time, I really appreciate Wyrick you joining us. And again, it's really great to have somebody that's from another podcast like Task and Purpose to be able to come on the show and share some of the knowledge and information that, that you have that you guys talk about on those shows. And then uh, as well, uh, your past experience on the JAG side and having made the transition, I think it's really valuable to those that are listening, especially as an officer, since with most of the people that we've had a chance to talk with in the past have been all enlisted side so it's really cool to get the officer perspective and uh, appreciate you joining the podcast yeah i mean i and if i can if i can say anything to my fellow officers don't don't wear that after your time in service that was the past and you need to broaden your horizons for whoever is going to be your your colleagues your bosses the people that you're going to work with because there's fantastic opportunities with the great young men and women that get out and, and go on to do incredible things. So we need to open up the aperture and ensure that, that we expose ourselves to everybody. Absolutely. Not, not in a exposing yourself. Well, and, and go back to what you had said <laughs> and go back to what you had said previously about. Hey, the I, I had to get a laugh out of Uh, And go back to what you had said originally about, uh, you know, reaching out and helping, uh, learning from others, and then, of course, passing that back. I think uh, you've done a tremendous job in a lot of your articles that you've written on Task and Purpose as well about trying to give back and share your knowledge and, uh, you know, doing shows like this and what you do a lot on Task and Purpose is a lot of the same thing. So, you know, that I think that always helps individuals who are still on active duty or trying to figure out navigate the the space of you know being transitional uh, or going into the uh, the private sector and any knowledge that they can get is always helpful again appreciate you coming on the podcast and being a part of the show this evening for those who are interested uh, we'll have the shows up on itunes and on soundcloud shortly and uh, we'll also uh, have it up on the mentors for military podcast segment of our website so you can go on there on mentorsformilitary.com that's mentors for military.com and uh, have an opportunity to see it there again Wyrick, appreciate you being on the show on behalf of scott for susan and for mike really appreciate everybody that was in the mixler chat room and uh, for the questions that you had this evening we hope you have a great evening and we'll talk to you in a few days